0: And you guys have a really convenient option because you're here at 930 Worship. You can hang around for the 11 o'clock community group. Uh, if you're not in one, please get in one as, as all of the groups are just getting started right now. If you want a challenge, uh, then here's a challenge for you. Read the Bible and try to find an example of a good family. Like a positive example of how you should be as a, family, as a mom or a dad, or, or the interactions of your family together. Just find one good example. The, the Bible presents a lot of its characters, especially its major characters, and especially in the Old Testament, in the context of their family. Uh, the Bible gives us uh, family dynamics and fa- family details and genealogies. Here's all the people who were in this family. The interesting thing about the Bible is we don't really have good examples of what it would look like to be a family. The only good examples are the ones that we know very little about. Like they just kind of appear, there's like a comment, but then you don't really know the details of the family. Once you start digging into the details of the families in the Bible, you find that almost all of the families in the Bible were dysfunctional. They were broken. Uh, They had parents that made really bad decisions. They had children that abandoned the teachings of their parents and broke their parents' hearts. They had fathers whose mistakes had consequences for multiple generations after, after they lived. This is the nature of the families that are in the Bible. I mean, think about some of them. Adam and Eve. They disobey God. They have one son that murders another son. Uh, you, you have uh, Abraham who has a child with his wife's servant. Um, you have Jacob uh, and, uh, you have Jacob and Rebecca who play favorites with their kids, ends up breaking up uh, their whole family. Just one story after another of chaos. David has an affair. David's, David's kids are a, are a wreck. Some of his kids try to overthrow David as king. He has a son who rapes his stepsister. Solomon marries multiple wives and tons of girlfriends. I mean, every every family that you know much about in the Bible. Seems to be a wreck. If you want to feel better about your family, read the Bible. If you read the Bible, you'll think, hey, we're not that bad. We kind of got things going on in our family. But we get this honest, real picture of a family. It, with all of its hurts and, and all of its disappointments. Because family can be painful. Right? I, I, I'm not even sure this is like a sermon this morning. <laughs> maybe it's just therapy for all of us. Maybe, it's just, maybe we just talk a little bit about the fact that sometimes family's just hard. Sometimes family gets really, really complicated. And it's not just the families in the Bible. Let's be honest. All of us have brokenness and mess in our families, everybody's family's weird. It just is. And you don't like me saying that about your family. You know, it's kind of the old thing of you can call your family weird. You don't like anybody else calling your family weird. And I'm the same way. I I can talk bad about my family. I don't like you talking bad about my family. But as we start, can we just be honest that there really are no ordinary families. There really are no normal families. Normal doesn't really apply to anybody's family. And we try to keep it covered up. Right? We do our best not to let, let it We talk about family secrets that we try to keep from other people just within the family. And that's good. Those secrets should stay within the family. I'm not suggesting that you tell the whole world. We, we already think your family's weird. Like We don't need to know more about the strange stuff that's going on in your family. We know all the strange stuff going on in our family. The thing about family weirdness is... Um, Everybody's family is weird in its own way. Like It's unique in its own way. Like there's, there's unique weirdness to my family that's different from the unique weirdness that's in your family, but we all have it. It's all there, buried somewhere down the family tree, somewhere in there. We all have it. And because we all have it, sometimes we look at the struggles of our own family and we think, well, we must be the only ones that go through this sort of thing. We must be the only one who have kids that fill in the blank. right? We must be the only one that argues about this behind closed door. We must be the only ones having these struggles. And that's the beautiful thing about the Bible and the, and the way it talks about families is just kind of page after page it says, no, We're all kind of messed up, and that messed up-ness passes on and into our families and into our marriages and into our relationships, and yet, even though all of us have it, when God wanted to resolve the initial relationship issue, He did it with a family. And he looks at Adam and, and he realizes, he doesn't realize it, he knows, it. Adam's alone and this isn't good, I want to fix that, how should I fix it? God doesn't fix the relational issue with a committee, right? So well, we're going to put a committee together and they can all talk and work things out or, or a corporation, we're going to give them a business, you know let them sit around a board table, or a government, like God didn't say, well, we're going to establish a government and that'll fix relational problems, or, or even a church. God's initial response to relational isolation wasn't to put a church in place, it was to build a family, a family that would quickly go south, a family that would quickly make bad decisions, but that was God's response. You see, God created... The family, knowing that families were going to have problems. The the, the problems that my family has and your family has, they're not a surprise to God. He's not caught off guard by our problems. He knew the potential for chaos when He put people together. He, He knew the potential for struggle and even brokenness. And hurt and pain and wounds and scars. He knew that potential when he created family. So all of this time later, it should be no surprise that if we're honest, we know that sometimes being a family is just kind of hard work. It's sometimes frustrating and and there are times that it leaves wounds and it leaves scars. God in creating the family knew that the people closest to us have the greatest potential to cause us pain. When he he put Adam and Eve together in a close relationship, God already knew that was the perfect environment for the greatest love and that's also the perfect environment for the greatest pain. And isn't that still true today? The people that are closest to us, they have the greatest potential to hurt us. You, you don't really care what somebody that you don't know says about you or thinks about you or does to you. It doesn't really matter. You kind of get over that quickly. You know, some of us like people to like us. We're pleasers, so we want everybody to like us. But it's a, it's a different scale when somebody that I hardly know doesn't think I'm that great of a person... Versus when I have conflict with the people that I see every single day. Right? It's the closeness, it's the proximity of our relationship that creates the environment for the greatest love. And the greatest meaning in a relationship. And, and, and the greatest moments of, uh, of shared experiences. And that is also the perfect environment for the greatest hurts. And the greatest pains. The greatest struggles. When it comes to to the family, that closeness is baked into the process, right? Because you chose the person you you marry, but you you didn't really choose the family you were born into. Uh, None of us chose the kids that we were going to have, right? It wasn't like Build-A-Bear. It wasn't like, well, I want that one with this, and can we add that, and I want those clothes, and all right, fluff them up and take them home. It wasn't that sort of thing. You got what you got. And that, that closeness means that you share the last name. You, you share all these genetic components. You look like each other. You, sh- you have so many shared memories and experiences over the years, and, and that brings this wonderful amount of, of joy and, and fulfillment and, and love. But at the same time, it brings this potential to really hurt one another, to really be disappointed, to, to be discouraged, to be wounded. The place of greatest love is also the exact same place of the greatest potential for for hurt. It's interesting when you think about um, Jesus. you think about the gospel. The place of greatest love was at the same time, there was a convergence of the place of greatest love with the place of greatest pain. The place of greatest sacrifice. Jesus comes into the world. The the Bible says he was rejected by his own. He came to his own. They didn't receive him. We read in the New Testament tension between Jesus and his closest family. Uh, The gospel. our, Our sin against our creator whose image we're made in. Like baked in the process. We, we bear the image of, Christ, of God, our Heavenly Father. We're a part of His family. And, and in that loving, gracious, merciful environment, we chose to walk away. Like we created the cosmic eternal pain of rejecting our Heavenly Father. So what had to take place is that God had to send someone. God had to send His Son to demonstrate in the face of the most eternal, greatest pain and rejection to demonstrate the greatest love. John John describes Jesus this way at one point as He's getting ready to die. John says, He loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. Now, these were the ones who were going to reject Him. These were the ones who We're going to walk away, deny they even knew Him. These were the ones who sinned, creating the need for Him to come and die. And John says, but you know what? Jesus loved them to the end. There was this convergence of the greatest pain the world has ever known, the rejection of our Heavenly Father, and the greatest love that would redeem all things back to God. This messy, complicated moment then is overcome with love, which is is the environment of the family, isn't it? And the environment of the family is our greatest pains, our our greatest disappointments, our greatest worries, our greatest anxiety is the place where there's the potential for the greatest love. Here's what I think. I think the Bible bears this out. I think the family is to be a picture of the gospel. It is to be one of the clearest demonstrations of where there was pain and hurt and discouragement and struggles and problems that love and grace and mercy are able to overcome those things. It It is... It is one of the clearest environments where we get to live out what we actually believe about God's love and His grace and His mercy with people that sometimes hurt us the most. In Ephesians 5 and 6, it's one of the sections where Paul talks about family, where Paul talks about husband and wife and, and children and what the family should look like. He, he's been making some theological arguments, and then leading up to this moment, he's been talking about what the Christian life looks like. If you really lived it out, like if you really lived for Jesus, it would look like this, and then he segues right into marriage and family. He doesn't separate the two, but The ideas of our family and our marriage are kind of an overflow of our spiritual life. There's not a separate book of the Bible that discusses marriage. Have you noticed that? There's not like the book of family. And you read it, it has all the instructions about your family. Instructions about family, instructions about marriage, all happen within the bigger context of living out the spiritual life. You see, the way the family operates is not a separate part of my Christian life. It should be the result of my Christian life. It should be the overflow. The person I am as a husband is not a separate category from the Christian that I am everywhere else. The person you are as a, as a mom or, or a wife or, or a dad... It's not its own separate category. And I think what Paul demonstrates in the way he writes about these issues is, as you're living for Christ, as you're living out your spiritual life, it will result in a certain type of person as a husband. It will mean certain things become true of you as a dad. And often that's the hardest place to live it out. Because right? things get real at home. Right? Things get... I don't have to pretend at home. I don't have to put on my public face or my church face. And I'm me. And all of my frustration and all of my struggles and, and uh, all of my emotions, all of that comes home with me. And home is where we tend not to hide all of that. Like the, the really real you is often the person that you are when you walk into your house. And that's the person that Paul says should reflect all of these other things we talk about when we talk about the spiritual life. Because the reality is, if my spiritual life doesn't work in my home and with my family, it doesn't work anywhere. It's fake everywhere else if my spiritual life isn't lived out in my home. I've, um, I've been a pastor long enough that I know that what we get on Sunday morning is not always what's happening Monday through Saturday. I mean, we may even say what we get on Sunday morning is rarely happening Monday through Saturday. Like, this is just like a little component of who we are, and it's not that we're faking it on Sunday morning. I'm not necessarily saying that. I, I'm just saying there's a part of us that we present here on Sunday morning, but then there's another part of us that, that goes home at the end of the service, and and, and we live out Monday through Saturday. And, and Paul, in his writing, I think is trying to say, that should be the same person. It should be the same person. There should... There should be a a character about us that reflects Jesus. And the biggest testing ground for that character is not here. It's who I am at home. Around the people that I'm closest to. That I spend the most amount of time with. I spend so much time around them that we have the chance to really get on each other's nerves. Like some of you did on the way to church this morning, right? Like we're around each other so much that we see things and things slip out and we say things. The family really is the microcosm of what God is trying to do in us because it's so difficult to fake it all the time with our family. He wants really to transform us into the person of Jesus so that even those who are around us the most experience Jesus in us. Paul writes, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, "...submit to one another out of reverence for Christ." I'm so glad he started there. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The spiritual rules of the house, the spiritual rules of the family begin with a mutual submission. I cannot put myself at the center of everything if I'm going to honor God and my family. I can't look out for me above all others if I'm going to honor God in my family. Paul says this is where the family rules start. A willingness to submit your priorities and your goals and your direction for the good of the rest of the people who are in the family. The Bible speaks of Jesus this way, right? That Jesus submitted to the will of His Father. Jesus submitted to the plan of His Father. Philippians 2 says He steps out of heaven. He lowered Himself to becoming a human. He, he didn't demand position and title and, and honors. He becomes a human, and then He lowers Himself to become a servant, and then He submits all the way to death. This downward progression of serving other people was the character of Jesus. And so Paul seems to be saying, that's the goal in the family. The goal is that you would submit you for the good of your family. Then he goes on and he gets into specifics. I'm going to read kind of a long passage. Just stay with me. This is verse 22. Wives. without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason. A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. What happens often with this passage and others like it in the Bible is that we grab onto words or phrases and, and we, want, we want to make that the point. We, we want to hammer home this word or this thing. We especially like to talk to the other person about what this verse says to them. So if we're a wife, we like to talk to the husband about what this verse says to the And for the husband, we like to tell the wife what this, this passage says about the wife. But I think, What Paul ultimately is trying to build the case for is that in our homes, you and I need to look like Jesus, which is a tall order. I I, I understand that. But you and I, in our submission to one another, in our forgiveness of one another, in the areas of love and mercy, serving one another, we're we're to look like the Jesus Who came down from heaven to live serving other people. Looking for ways to bring out the ultimate eternal best in another person. In a chaotic, messy world. In the chaos and messiness of family is the exact right arena to live out this type of love. Because none of us have perfect families. And none of us have easy families. That's the perfect environment to demonstrate the love that Jesus is growing in us. He turns to children at the beginning of chapter 6 and he says, Children, obey your parents and the Lord. For this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Children, submit. Honor your parents at the same time, fathers and mothers, Don't lead in a way that discourages your children, that exasperates, that builds up resentment and anger in your children. Instead, lead your children as Christ leads you, lovingly serving you that you would become all that you were created to be. In other words, the role of the parent is not to beat down but to bring up because that's what Jesus did for us. Jesus came to where we were, offered forgiveness and grace and love and mercy so that we might become who He created us to be. All that He created us to be. No matter how hard we try, no matter how much we work at it, family dynamics are never going to be perfect. They're never going to be free of struggle. They're never going to be free even of heartache, which again is the perfect environment to demonstrate the endless love and grace and mercy of God in our family. It would be wonderful. If everything about our family was harmonious and peaceful and everybody got along all the time and everybody saw every situation the exact same way and our kids never had different ideas from us and our spouse never disagreed with us, it would be wonderful to live in that sort of world. There is no such world as that. Which is why the environment... Of struggle and sometimes chaos and sometimes heartache and sometimes heartbreak is the environment to reflect the gospel of Jesus is the environment to reflect the grace and the mercy of Je- our, our, our families are never going to be perfect places which is exactly why they're the perfect place to live out love and grace and mercy and forgiveness. It's possible. <clears throat> it's possible that some of us grew up in not not just families that had struggles, but families that left us with great wounds. It's possible that some of us bear scars of what we experienced growing up, our relationship to our parents, the family dynamics that we were in. The gospel says that doesn't have to define all of your future. The gospel says even that is redeemable because of the person and the work of Jesus. I'm not excusing um, abuse. Uh, I'm I'm not excusing uh, parents who weren't attentive. I am saying that the, the grace and the mercy and the love of Jesus is enough for even the greatest heartaches that we experience in our families. One other thought. When you read what Paul has to say in Ephesians uh, 5, it's interesting how the bulk of his message is to the guys. I mean, If, if you read it, there's, there's a little statement to the wives at the beginning. There's a little statement to the children at the end. But the bulk of that, the middle section, and then he comes back to it again at the end, is to the men. Where he says to us, guys, we have to go first. We have to lead when it comes to grace and mercy and love and reflecting Jesus and offering forgiveness and seeking forgiveness when we blow it. Because we will blow it. We have to go first. The message of Paul for the men is not just, you're supposed to be the head of the household. You're the leader of the family or you make the final decisions. All of those are other discussions. The bulk of Paul's message to the fathers, to the men, to the husbands is, like you have to set the pattern... Of what it looks like to live like Jesus in your home. The guys don't get a pass. They bear the most responsibility for reflecting Jesus in their home. We're not supposed to just sort of tag along while our wife keeps everything peaceful in our home. We're certainly not to be the one who creates all of the chaos in our home. We're to be the leader of our home in the sense that we are to reflect the person of Jesus. We're not just the arbitrary decision maker in our home. We're we're not just the one who steps in after mom's done everything else and we finally settle things down with the kids. Paul, by his argument, says, Dad, you got to be... The one. You've got to be the leader when it comes to exhibiting the mercy and grace, the gospel of Jesus in front of your family. You don't get a pass, you bear the most responsibility for living this out. So, men, do that. Be that in your family. Be the one seeking after the heart of God and leading your family in that direction. Be the one who reflects the person of Jesus in your family. You won't get it right every time. You will struggle as all of us struggle. But your family, that God has put you in and over as a man, your family is to be an example of the mercy and grace and gospel of Jesus. An example to all the other people who see your family. They're not looking for a perfect family. Nobody believes in a perfect family. But the world needs to see families that love and forgive and who see even difficult times as an opportunity for the grace of Jesus to be displayed. Some of you are walking through those times right now. Some of you are walking through the why us, why me, why now, and whatever the reasons are, whatever whatever you come up with for the reasons. I think what Paul wants you to see and and what God wants you to see is even that thing, can be redeemed for eternity. It can be be restored. It can be made new because of Jesus in your family. You're never going to have a perfect one. But we can have a family that reflects the gospel inside and outside of our family. And that is what we're called to. And men, that is especially what we are called to as the leaders of our home. Let's pray. I thank you that the Bible doesn't paint perfect families. The Bible doesn't tell us stories of dads that always got it right, and moms who always knew what to say, and kids who always obeyed. Because none of us live in that family. We live in broken families and hurting families. We live in families where there's disappointment. Families where there's discouragement. Thank you that you work your grace. You work truth and love and mercy in our brokenness. It's certainly true for our salvation. The brokenness of our sin led to the mercy and love of God being displayed in the person of Jesus. And it's true for our marriages and our families as well. The struggles that we face are opportunities. For you to reveal your goodness and grace in the hard places. God, I pray for the marriages. They're struggling right now. Nobody else knows it, maybe. They don't talk about it at church. Maybe they haven't even talked about it with each other. There's just this tension. Give them boldness that they would see the, the grace of Jesus at work in the struggle. I pray over parents who are hurting because of decisions their kids are making. I pray over parents that their hearts are broken right now. You see them. You have not abandoned them. The gospel is true for their family just as it is for anyone else. I pray their faithfulness would allow them to see that you were working good and grace and mercy even through this season of their life. I pray for the men who are here. God, we don't need More authoritarians in our homes. We don't need more men who know everything. We need men who love Jesus, who are striving every day to be men of grace, men of conviction, men of integrity. Help us to lead the way in grace. Help us to lead the way in loving our family. Help us to lead the way in serving our family. Help us to lead the way in submitting so that our wife, our kids could reach the full potential of what you created them for just in the same way that Jesus served us. God, your perfect love is enough for imperfect families. Help us to feel that today, to embrace that today, to receive that today. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.